Ahoy mateys, and welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, recorded live in Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and it's October, and we have a pretty spooky topic, guns. Now, depending on who you ask, Americans' right to bear arms is either an anachronism from an era when most gun owners were farmers with muskets, or an essential liberty that allows me to carry an AK-47 into a pizza hut. Either way, everybody's fighting about it, and we're going to be talking about it all month long. Now, for our first installment of Gun Month, we're going to dive into U.S. v. Miller. It was a case heard before the Supreme Court in 1937, and it's used by both pro- and anti-gun activists to justify their opinions on what rights are enshrined in the Constitution regarding firearms. Both of them claim it backs them up. So who's right? Well, to answer that question, I asked Brian Fry, associate professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law, to talk about the case. And here's the short answer. No one. I'll be back at the end with closing comments. So thank you, first off, for, for taking the time to speak. Well, my pleasure. Anytime. Just to, just to start off with, with the subject of your paper, you mm-hmm. know, the high level of U.S. v. Miller is we have two bank robbers, Jack Miller and Frank Layton. They're caught with sawed-off shotguns, and they're arrested, and they're tried for violating the National Firearms Act. Is that? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's sort of the precipitating event in in the story is this criminal prosecution, uh, primarily against Miller. I mean, Layton was involved as well, but he kind of fell out of the picture. Yeah. Yeah. And now the the thing I find before we even get into like the meat of it. The thing I find hysterical is is your description of Miller and Layton as washed up bank robbers, because <laughs> like all I could think of was like you know the equivalent of some like eighties hairband like Rad or Dokken paying like playing yeah. like frat houses and state fairs and stuff like that. <clears throat> but can you describe them a little bit? Yeah, I mean, oddly, I, I kind of think of almost like characters from a Coen Brothers film. Or okay, something. like yeah. sort of they kind of come off as being sort of sad sacks. You know, um, so both of them were affiliated with this gang that was operating in the sort of Oklahoma, Missouri area in the in, in, in at the time, the 1930s, robbing robbing banks and whatnot. And they were actually pretty successful. It was called the O'Malley. It was known as the O'Malley Gang, although O'Malley was actually a pretty small player in the gang itself, but they, you know, robbed a lot of banks and ended up getting a lot of money, including one of the few, uh, two banks on the same day at the same time, All right. <laughs> robberies, which is pretty impressive, really. Um, and Miller's role in that gang was primarily as a driver, not as one of the, the robbers, or at least that's the way it's been reported. And, and he kind of had a way of getting himself into trouble as it were. Um, You know, I mean, all the information I have about him as an individual is based on newspaper accounts from the time, primarily from kind of smaller Oklahoma and uh, Missouri based, uh, based or Arkansas and, and Oklahoma based smaller newspapers. Um, But you kind of get the impression that he was like, sort of like, a bit of a sad sack, like a not really taken that seriously by some of the other gang members, perhaps. Is that what the getaway driver did? 
<laughs> was the getaway driver kind of like the you know the b squad it's like you know we'll let yeah. Jack, yeah i kind of got that impression and he seems like the kind of getaway driver who would like forget to fill the tank with gas or something got, all right got it <laughs> got it <laughs> all right so we've got two losers among the bank robber community of northern oklahoma southern bank Arkansas. Ro- I like that the bank robber community yes <laughs> you know well it, just, it feels like there's like they're a tight-knit bunch you know you have mm-hmm. the o'malley gang and mm-hmm. yeah so so it's like a family and jack and frank who are let's just say not at the top of their game they get arrested they get caught with sawed-off shotguns and that's in violation of the national firearms act and yeah just for the folks listening, can you explain just in a nutshell what the NFA covered? Sure. Yeah. Actually, I think some context is really helpful to understand what was going on there, right? So you remember, we're talking about a period uh, during the New Deal. One of the important things that was happening was an effort to, as a general matter, expand the scope uh, of the regulatory power of the federal government. Right. Um, so, you know, the most famous elements of that are things like the National Industrial Recovery Act or, you know, the issue, the kind of the, 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 the kind of regulatory actions that were at stake in issues like Sh- the Schechter case involving poultry. And then ultimately sort of the regulation of markets that came up to the Supreme Court in the case Wickard v. Filburn, in which the Supreme Court ultimately said that uh, Congress could regulate commerce pretty much across the board and in any way it wanted to under the commerce clause of the constitution. But the, 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 the statute that we're talking about here and the time period we're talking about here are a little bit earlier, right? So this is a period in time in which the Supreme Court had not yet accepted the ability of the federal government to comprehensively regulate commerce via its commerce clause power. And it's kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around today because we just assume that, you know, the federal government can basically pass laws about anything it wants to, right? So long as there isn't like a specific constitutional provision saying that it can't, we just kind of assume regulation is what the government does. There's all these agencies, agencies regulate all kinds of stuff. But in the 1930s, that wasn't true yet, right? The the scope of the regulatory power of the federal government was seen as being much more limited. Mm-hmm. And this kind of regulation was done by states, if at all. Right. So the NFA, at least as I see it, was at least in part a, a, a sort of one of the many uh, efforts of the federal government to extend its regulatory power. And one of the things that's really telling about it, right, was that A, you know, it was really the f- broadly speaking, like the first mm-hmm. major federal effort to, to regulate firearms and other kinds of, of weapons. Um, but in addition, that because the Commerce Clause authority of the federal government hadn't been recognized really by the Supreme Court yet, it was actually regulation accomplished through the taxing clause, the, the, the authority of, of Congress to impose taxes, right? So the NFA was actually a tax, not a regulation of commerce in firearms. And it was a tax intended to make it, you know, I- effectively um, financially undesirable or almost impossible for people to own the kinds of weapons that it was regulating in such a way as to discourage people from from owning them. Yeah, it was like it was the same thing they did with marijuana originally where they just kind of taxed it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Although, you know, the NFA is still in place too, right? I mean, 
it remains the case that the National Firearms Act, which was enacted in order to functionally prohibit machine guns, sawed-off shotguns, and sawed-off rifles, or short-barreled, as they were called, shotguns, and and rifles, remains in effect. And, you know, it's a criminal law with attacks associated with it that's intended to effectively make it impossible or very expensive and difficult for law-abiding people to own these kinds of weapons. And, you know, by extension, if someone's a criminal and they're not, you know, buying tax stamps and sending in duties mm-hmm. to the federal government, um, then if they're caught with these weapons, then it's going to be a criminal act. And so they can be charged for possession yeah. of, of these, of these, of these weapons. Yeah. I, so I, when I was reading about the 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 NFA, I decided to kind of Google a bit and see if it was still in effect. And sure enough, there is a tax you have to pay for any weapon that's covered by it, which we can get into in a little bit. But the the thing I found hysterical about it is they didn't index it for inflation. So, mm-hmm, I mean, not mm-hmm. to say- Yeah, and too- people do it. I mean, I know people in Kentucky who own fully automatic machine guns and you know they're they're available for people to shoot if you want to but it's very expensive uh, still in order to do that yeah so we basically got miller and and layton they're arrested under the terms of the nfa um and and i guess before we step ahead there's there's sort of a, a tangential question i have to ask which i didn't think of until you you know you brought it up which is it it doesn't sound as mm-hmm. if this is a like the nfa is really so much an effort to control the use of firearms in so much as it's maybe part of a larger is part of a larger group of policies that are increasing the reach of the federal government. Is that fair or no? Am I totally off base here? I, 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 I think that's right. You know, and okay. I, you know, I, I, I could be wrong. Right. And it's certainly, it's certainly possible that there was at least an element within Congress or within the executive branch that saw the NFA as kind of an initial effort focused on gun control and specifically on the regulation of firearms. And of course, that is what it what it regulated. I don't think that that was the primary motivating factor in a lot of ways, although it was certainly the case that, you know, there was a perception at uh, least of a kind of wave of bank robberies <laughs> okay. taking place, especially in, in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and that these bank robberies were facilitated by ready access to automatic rifles and to, you know, sawed off shotguns and other concealable kinds of weapons as well. So there was certainly an element in which the federal government wanted to sort of add to the ability to, um, try to regulate or try to prosecute this kind of criminal activity in the Midwest. But my sense is anyway, that the act was intended to go more to the criminal activity and less to the ownership of the weapons per se. Got it. Got it. And was there any sort of resistance to this act or were there any, was there any dissent or were people pretty unified in the idea that crime's kind of out of control and this is the best way to address it? I don't, I, I did not see very much in the way of organized opposition yeah. to the bill. I think it was seen as being a totally legitimate and sensible way to try to curb this, um, this wave 
of gang violence and robbery in in the Midwest during the period. My understanding is that the NRA at the time was supportive of this particular law. Um, I believe there were some people who, you know, wrote letters or something saying like this is unnecessary or out of control, but it was it was a pretty limited number of people. And I would suggest that like in a lot of ways, it was arguably, possibly, maybe actually more controversial in a sort of constitutional and legal sense to think that the government was able to use its taxing authority in order to de facto regulate and prohibit a particular item that people were owning, whether it was firearms or anything else for that matter. That was where the real fight was, right? To the extent that there was a real live question about what the constitutional scope of congressional authority to regulate activity was. And so this was, you know, as I say, I think one among many efforts to say, we want to expand this authority. We want to look for different ways we can do it. And we want to ask ourselves, you know, when and how we can increase the reach of the federal government without the Supreme Court slapping us down and saying that it's an unconstitutional abuse of congressional authority. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so I just want to, I just want to pause there for a second and just state that in 1938, in response to a rise in gun crime, the United States could pass a law regulating access to firearms, and not only did nobody get mad about it, but the NRA actually supported it. That's I right. wanted, well, the NRA was a very different organization back yeah, then. I, I, apparently so. Apparently so. Um, okay, so now that we've got all that, Miller and Layton are tried in Arkansas by someone who wins hands down the contest for best name in the story, Judge Hiram Hartsell Ragon. Am I pronouncing that right? Or I think I think it's I think it's Hiram Hartsell. Hiram Hartsell. Okay. Do you know? So I I actually looked this up. Um, Hiram Hartsell Ragon had a son, Hiram Hartsell Ragon Jr. And it actually turns out Junior Hiram Herzl Ragon had a son and gave him the same exact name. So right now, uh-huh. we could pick up the phone, and down in Arkansas, there is a Hiram Herzl Ragon III roaming around who could verify the pronunciation of his grandfather's <laughs> name. I, I should have called him and figured you it know, out. You <laughs> know, it was a written paper, not a spoken one. So I think you get a pass mm-hmm. there. Um, but judges, so Judge Ragon, he's a Democrat. And it kind of seems as if he tees up the case so it can't help but be contested in the Supreme Court. Am I right there? That, 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 that's exactly right. So Reagan had very recently been appointed to the bench by FDR, and he previously had been a congressman from, from Arkansas, okay. right? So he was strongly aligned with the Roosevelt kind of policy positions. He was strongly aligned in the effort of the, of the Roosevelt administration to increase its regulatory authority. And in particular, he was actually individually, personally, strongly in favor of gun control as well. In fact, as a congressman, he introduced bills that didn't pass that were intended to regulate handguns, uh, or I believe the mailing of handguns, among among other things. And you had to pass a law for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, mailing handguns was very normal 
back then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a different world, man. Things were very, very different. People kind of took things for granted that sound totally bonkers to us today. So it was really interesting. What, what struck my eye when I started working on, on the project mm-hmm. was that, you know, that this guy who seemingly had been a sort of strongly in favor of federal authority and strongly in favor of gun control did a 180 about face and in the Miller's trial case issued an opinion just with no one even bringing it up saying that the, uh, that the, the, the Federal Firearms Act violates the Second Amendment and is therefore unconstitutional, right? And that wasn't even an argument that was raised by Miller's pro bono attorney, right? And it essentially guaranteed an immediate appeal to the Supreme Court because, you know, here was a district court judge overruling as unconstitutional on novel, never really before used grounds. Um, you know, there was no way that wasn't going to get appealed to the Supreme Court. And he sort of intentionally didn't provide any reasoning for why he thought it violated the Second Amendment. And there's sort of a suggestion, well, more than a suggestion, I think, under the circumstances that they, that Reagan and the U.S. Attorney's Office at the time wanted this to be as uncontested a case as possible. So what had happened in the district court setting was that when Miller's case came before the court, Reagan appointed counsel for, for, for Miller, who was actually, I believe his son-in-law or something. Um, Uh and, and Miller basically never showed up and well, he showed up for the initial hearing when the case got kicked, he split, right. And then when the case, and at that point in time, unlike today, uh, cases didn't necessarily have to go through the intermediate circuit courts of appeals yeah. before going to the Supreme Court. There was a mechanism for kind of direct appeal to the Supreme Court in certain kind of cases, including criminal ones like yeah. this. So the case got appealed directly to the Supreme Court from the district court. And Reagan's pro bono attorney basically said, I'm not getting paid. I don't want to go argue in the Supreme Court. I'll just like let the government file its brief and the Supreme Court can just decide on the basis of what the government has to say. Okay, so so it's entirely un- so it gets to the Supreme Court and it's entirely uncontested. Is that right, or did that's that's exact that's exactly right? There's a there's a brief filed by by the Attorney mm-hmm. General uh, on behalf of the government arguing that the law is constitutional. There's no brief and no argument on the part of the defense, and in fact, Miller was dead by that time. Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, honestly, throughout this whole story, I'm I'm thinking about I'm thinking about Miller, who initially offered a plea, right? And Reagan mm, Reagan right. refused turn him know, down. Refused to hear turn him. him down. So Miller doesn't even <laughs> want to be there, and then he's no. getting dragged to the Supreme Court. So other than the fact that he's dead, I'm kind of relieved for the poor guy. Yeah. Well, dead dead because he was murdered. Oh. Yeah, I mean the reason he was dead was because he turned state's evidence on the other members of the gang. Right. So he was a snitch. And when the other gang members found him, they gunned him. Uh, snitches get stitches, I guess. Huh? That's this is this was very much the case. <laughs> All the time, right. For sure. All right. So, uh, OK, so it goes. So the case now gets to the Supreme Court. Uh, Miller's side doesn't show up. So it's just a brief by the attorney general. 
And it's overseen by a court of eight justices because one of them calls in sick, which I found exceptionally quaint. I mean, you know, 1938 is a very interesting year. You can. Yeah. Yeah. It still occasionally happens that judges miss hearings. You know, Supreme Court justices don't necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're the law professor. You you tell me, but so they actually. It, it happens. Okay. Yeah, it, it happens. If, if a justice gets sick, they just won't be on the bench. And sometimes they recuse themselves if they have an interest, usually a financial interest of some kind in a case. Mm-hmm. So a eight-judge court is not that unusual. Okay. Okay, got it. I, I thought it was – well, of course, all the cases you ever hear about, like like Citizens yeah, United. They're really, yeah. they're, really, they're really important ones. They make sure to show up because you know not being there could change the outcome of the case. But this one was not – you know, this was it was an eight judge case, but it was also an eight zero. All right, all right. So, so needless to say, that the 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 ninth really wouldn't have made a difference. Um, and and the ruling is that it the NFA doesn't violate the Second Amendment because the Second Amendment pertains to weapons that would be used in the militia, weapons of war, and a sawed off shotgun isn't used during warfare at the time. Is that? Do, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that that's what well, it's. It's a little hard to say exactly. I mean, the opinion is kind of lacking yeah. in um, in explanatory value. It doesn't really have a coherent theory of why the law is constitutional or why the Second Amendment doesn't uh, protect the kinds of weapons uh, at issue, specifically the sawed-off shotgun that Miller was arrested for. And it doesn't seem as well, of course, that the government provided any meaningful information that would have substantiated the kind of ostensible rationale for why the Supreme Court reached the the decision that it did. I mean, my sense was that nobody really cared that yeah. much. Right, that it just didn't really seem to matter. Um, that, in a sense, I, I can't help. I, there, there's no indication to me that anybody seriously thought that the Second Amendment was going to be a problem for this kind of litigation. And my impression is that, in many ways, what was really more at stake and more controversial might have actually been the regulatory effort as a whole with the Second Amendment issue kind of just being a bit of a stand-in yeah almost as if they didn't really care that much but it was a great way to get a regulatory law before the court and get it to sign off on the law being acceptable even though kind of under some of the theories the court was working with at the time you know arguably this was a de facto regulation of interstate commerce which the supreme court really said that you know the the ability of the federal government to do that is is limited right and it can't just regulate anything it wants to it has to be legitimately interstate commerce of some kind. And here, you know, to the extent it's commerce at all, it's, uh, you know, a person driving across state lines with a prohibited firearm. I mean, uh, is that really commerce? Certainly under the theories of the 1930s, I think it was a stretch to call that, to call that commerce, right? So in effect, Congress was using its taxing authority to create a de facto regulation that it arguably couldn't have created under its direct authority to regulate interstate commerce. And so then it seems like the question would be, you know, can you accomplish by other means that which you can't accomplish directly? You know, it didn't really come up before the court because of course it was framed as 
a Second Amendment issue, but nevertheless, the court signed off on it. Yeah, and so that, that's the other big part of the ruling, right, is that the, it authorized Congress to tax the firearms, but it didn't allow them to regulate the use of it. Is that That's right. It? That's right. Again, if we, if we just go back over the whole story here, we have a case that gets to the Supreme Court where the plaintiff doesn't even show up. And a, let's call it relatively dispassioned judiciary that more or less signs off on the government's opinion. And my understanding is in a fairly like poorly worded opinion. Is that correct? Or am I being a little too critical? Here? I mean, it's, it's certainly been, it's certainly been criticized on, on those grounds. And, you know, I would stipulate that the justice who wrote this particular opinion, Justice James McReynolds, um, one of Kentucky's less illustrious um, native sons, um, is pretty well universally considered one of the less competent and most odious justices to sit on the 20th century Supreme Court. Um, So McReynolds was a notoriously ill-tempered person. He was also um, very, uh, very vocally racist and anti-Semitic. Um, <laughs> among other things, he uh, refused to have any uh, any dealings of any kind with Justice Brandeis, who was the first Jewish justice who had just been appointed uh-huh. by uh, President by President Roosevelt, um, and at least apocryphally uh, refused to sit for a photograph with Brandeis, although I've heard that that's actually not true and that he did sit, that there were other reasons why the photograph didn't take place, but that he was willing to talk to or at least be in the room with Brandeis, even though he refused to have any extensive um, dealings with Brandeis or Brandeis's chambers. You know, McReynolds is not particularly highly respected. um, And in general, his sort of judicial acumen is also... um, denigrated, I think, by many people and at many times. But, you know, I think one thing that's worth remembering, though, again, this was a very different time in the history of constitutional law in the Mm -hmm. United States. I mean, you know, the court's treatment of the Second Amendment was cursory and and unsatisfying, but this was a period in time in which there was basically no First Amendment protection. Mm -hmm. Of anything either, okay. right? I mean, and I think it's it's really easy to forget that you know if you're looking at this backward through the lens of today, I think you really miss the way that the court was conceptualizing constitutional protections on on a federal level, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, their protections for freedom of speech were also not taken very seriously at the time. You know, some justices protesting that you, know, you can see dissents in some of the World War One and and post war cases from Holmes and and others, right? But the majority on the court was 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 thinking about was thinking about the Bill of Rights and thinking about constitutional protections, even based on the constitutional text, in a very different way than we think about it today and in a way that was much less deferential to the content of, of the text, I think. So, I mean, I, I think it's a little anachronistic yeah. to look at this case and say, well, he did a bad job and it's poorly reasoned. I, I'm not sure it was that much more poorly reasoned than plenty of other cases that were being decided about similar issues at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And I guess what, somewhat off topic, like, like what's changed then? Like what's changed between then and, and now? Um, well, I mean, I would say, you know, 
the sort of Warren Court, William Brennan sort of revolution yeah. in constitutional law in the 1960s and 1970s. I mean, you know, to put, to put a pin in it, yeah. that, that's what really changed. I mean, it was, uh, I like to refer to it as kind of like almost like an a, acute legalization of the constitution, okay. right? It was a way in which, you know, and there are lots of different terms that people use for it or kind of ways that people try to kind of contextualize or understand how this shift in constitutional thinking happened and and what it meant, right? Somebody like Bruce Ackerman might refer to it as like a constitutional moment, mm-hmm. right? In which a sort of sort of the interpretive schema that we use to think about what constitutional law is, what it does, and how it relates to individual rights really fundamentally changed. You see it in the language of people like, you know, Justice Black and talking about incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states, which is also just a way of saying that these are fundamental rights that we're going to treat as legal rights, not just kind of social policy suggestions that we should take into account when we think about the scope of the state's ability to regulate people's behavior uh, under their under their police power, right? So, you know, it's not just the Second Amendment that's really, the Second Amendment, ironically, sort of popped up in Miller, you know, very early in like 1939, and then sort of disappeared for a long time. And most of the work in sort of constitutionalizing individual rights through the Bill of Rights and incorporation actually took place under a bunch of other very different amendments. You know, the Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable searches, Mm -hmm. the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, the Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury, et cetera. Eighth Amendment right, uh, you know, to be protected from cruel and unusual punishments, the First Amendment rights of freedom of speech and 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 freedom of conscience, you know, you name it, right? That's where all the work was happening in in later cases. And those were the amendments that ended up getting sort of legalized and treated as newly individually enforceable ways of protecting individuals against the government through decisions written by the Warren court and the sort of emerging liberal majority in the post-war, post-war period. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, 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 I just think that it's a weird case that happened at a weird time in which the sort of constitutional center of gravity was very different from where we understand it to be today. Yeah. I mean, would you say almost the Supreme Court now, for lack of a better phrasing, maybe has a bit more teeth in terms of their ruling? I, I, I don't think that's wrong. I would say that the Supreme Court today conceptualizes its role. Mm-hmm in relation to constitutional law and what that means in a very different way than it did at that point in time. I mean, so like one kind of theoretical touchstone a lot of people use is a, a law professor named Thayer, right? And people think about like a Thayerian approach to constitutional law, which is to say a very deferential approach to Congress's ability to exercise authority consistent with the Constitution. And that was where the Supreme, that's where the liberal wing of the Supreme Court was uh, during much of the relevant period of time, right? And we think about someone like Justice Frankfurter, right, as being kind of, at least at the time, perceived as the intellectual lodestar of much of the court, although that gradually changed as the court started to shift in a more kind of liberal rights-protecting sort of direction. But Frankfurter was highly deferential to 
congressional authority. And in fact, that was part of the idea of the Roosevelt court during the New Deal was to adopt sort of to introduce quote unquote liberal justices to the court who are going to be increasingly deferential to the federal government's ability to exert its regulatory authority. That was seen as sort of the liberalizing approach to sort of pushing back against the, what they call them, the four horsemen, right? The sort of the conservative Lochnerian wing of the Supreme Court that had been dominant uh, in the Supreme Court, you know, from the very end of the 19th century up up through what's often known as like switching time, right? The sort of reversal of the Supreme Court on the ability to regulate uh, economic and contractual relationships between between individuals. Yeah. And I know you'd mentioned the four horsemen too in your, in your paper. So what's their story? Cause obviously there's, they're, they're kind of in, in opposition to maybe the, what Roosevelt's trying to do. So like, what's, what's their story? What's their, their main philosophy? Well, you know, that's an interesting and difficult to answer question in a nutshell right? The story that people tend to tell is one of a court focused on protecting business interests against popular regulatory wishes. And the sort of bete noir of this kind of take on what the Supreme Court was doing is a case called Lochner v. New York, which was a 1907 case, I believe, in which the Supreme Court said that a New York law um, prohibiting uh Bakers from working more than eight hours in a row uh, was unconstitutional as a violation of the liberty of contract. This is kind of an outlier case when it was originally decided, um, but later became seen as kind of the bellwether of a kind of shift in the way the Supreme Court thought that emerged, I would argue, sort of in the late 20s and kind of persisted on the court through the 1930s, um, sort of pushing back against the efforts of the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal to expand the scope of congressional regulatory authority, right? So essentially, the Supreme Court was taking this idea of liberty of contract, of freedom from government regulation in economic affairs, and kind of applying it willy-nilly across the board to say that a lot of these regulations are violative of what we perceive as a fundamental constitutional protection uh, against people's economic activities being regulated by by well any government but especially by the federal government and so the four horsemen were sort of the the sort of emergent kind of hooverian yeah <laughs> uh sort of counterpoint to the efforts of of FDR and the new deal to sort of push for additional uh economic regulation um and you know in a way, you know, the Miller case is sort of an interesting example of how they weren't thinking necessarily about constitutional protections purely in sort of textual, like amendment based terms, the way we're often inclined to do so mm-hmm. today, right? So there was a kind of, they call it substantive due process. There was a kind of like sense that, like, well, this isn't, it doesn't have to be specifically mentioned in the Constitution. Mm hmm. In order to be, in order to be protected, yeah. Like, and and I'll, I'll I'll throw a comment out here, and, and you let me know your thoughts because mm-hmm. this is something I've been thinking since the the since Kavanaugh. 
was confirmed to the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. And, and obviously the big drive of Kavanaugh and I think the big drive of the Republican Party for a very long time has been to stack the courts with conservative justices, specifically around the goal of, of overturning Roe v. Wade, which is a uh, mm-hmm. which is is more or less again feeding the base in a way and and as you talk to me about the the history of the Supreme Court, you talk to me about how these justices sort of viewed their role and 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 ultimately uh, issued opinions it, it it almost sounds to me like we have a bunch of very very smart very very well read legal scholars who are able to somehow codify their biases framed under the bill of rights or framed under the constitution. Am I, I mean, I know that's a super cynical view, but any comments on that or or no? (laughs) I mean, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's wrong. Right. I mean, I think that the politics of constitutional law are politics like any other. They just play out on a much longer time frame under kind of much more veiled circumstances. Mm-hmm. Right. But a Supreme Court nomination is a political event that takes place in relation to a political calculus. Mm-hmm. And I think that's absolutely right. Right. That I mean, to the extent that we have constitutionalized our mm-hmm. politics for better or for worse, which is what we've done, right? We've made the Supreme Court into an increasingly relevant and salient political actor. And you see that in how these nomination fights play out, right? Something like the Gorsuch nomination, or especially as you point out, the Kavanaugh nomination, um, you know, and, and the, the refusal to confirm Justice Garland. Uh, or potential Justice Garland as as well, right? These reflect political fights over the ability of the Supreme Court to cement in political positions. You know, some people think that's a good thing. Some people think it's not such a good thing. I I, I mean, I, that's that's above my pay grade as far yeah. as I'm concerned. But I, I happy happy to describe it, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but you know, I I don't think that this is something new. Right. I mean, something very similar was playing out in the 1930s when Roosevelt was talking about, you know, trying to pack the courts in order to shift the center of gravity on the regulatory authority of the federal government. And, you know, and the, the court packing conversation has come back yeah. again. People are talking about that again today. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different argument being playing out over kind of different stakes, but not entirely different stakes. And the sort of the political salience of the court, I think, is still really important. I would say that there's a, a significant rhetorical difference, mm-hmm. though. And I think that this does bear on sort of the relevance, or as I kind of think the lack thereof, of Miller to contemporary conversations about what the Second Amendment means, or what we think it should mean, and what we think it should do. And one of the interesting things about that debate, you know, is that as Sandy Levinson uh, pointed out many years ago, you know, the Second Amendment is kind of embarrassing for a lot of people on the left, right? Because most of the, most of the Bill of Rights, we look at those rights and say these are, you know, these are constitutional protections that go to, you know, people who are vulnerable to to the government, right? So we protect people's right to free speech against government regulation. We protect people who are members of minority religions. We protect people from government searches. We protect people from, you know, coerced 
confessions. We protect people by providing them with the protections of a jury trial. We protect people from being, you know, unconstitutionally, unfairly, you know, and, and uh, egregiously punished. You know, we, we might even think, you know, protection against execution, arguably, you know, people think that the Eighth Amendment should be read in that way. The Second Amendment is kind of an outlier, right? Mm-hmm. Because on its face, at least arguably seems to say that people have a right to own guns. And that's like, well, geez, you know, that's kind of uncomfortable for some people who don't like guns and don't think that mm-hmm. guns are a good thing, right? Or, you know, and so that's really awkward or embarrassing. And so the question is, you know, if you support a strong reading of all these other amendments as providing sort of inalienable rights as against government regulation, you know, what do you do with the second amendment and how do you kind of neutralize it and, uh, you know, and give or sort of, how, how do you read it in such a way that it won't prevent or limit the government's ability to regulate or prohibit firearms? If you think the government ought ought to be able to do that. And so as a consequence, we see this really interesting phenomenon where both sides to the debate are really focused on, at least today, (laughs) both sides to the debate are very focused and have been very focused on sort of what the original meaning of the Second Amendment is and what it was intended to do, even though I think a lot of people on the left would not take that same stance when it comes to many of the other amendments to the constitution, right? I mean, if we were to talk about the original meaning of the first amendment or the fourth amendment, fifth amendment, sixth amendment, we might arrive at result or eighth amendment for that matter. We might arrive at results that are kind of, you know, a little awkward when it comes to contemporary mores, right? Um, And, and, and so there's this odd, an interesting kind of shift, rhetorical shift to say, well, you know, we should read the intentions behind the second amendment in such a way as really being about collective rights to participate in a militia and to own firearms or to possess firearms for the purpose of militia participation, not a kind of broader right to own firearms for any purpose you want whatsoever. And people on the right kind of reading out the preamble to the second amendment and saying, that's just giving like a justification, but the right is actually the right to bear arms. And that's the way the second amendment was originally intended and what it was originally supposed to mean. I I don't think Miller really has anything to add to that conversation because the Supreme court in 1939 just didn't care about that. Right. I mean, that was, that was not how they were thinking about what they were doing. And so the court just opined in a kind of open-ended way, really, in my opinion, more or less just about the reasonableness of the relevant regulation in question saying, come on, right? These are bank robbers and they have these shut off shotguns because they're concealable and they can use them to rob banks. And the government's trying to stop people from having machine guns because they're using machine guns to go rob banks and robbing banks is a bad thing. And we should stop people from robbing banks. And it's totally reasonable to say that we're going to try to regulate the ability of criminals to be engaging in commercial transactions in which they're buying and selling these weapons that they're using in order to rob (laughs) banks with. That's not okay. We don't want them to do that. Right. I, I don't think the Supreme Court, it's very clear 
the Supreme Court was not saying, oh, gee, right? What were the drafters <laughs> of the Second Amendment yeah. thinking when they came up with this provision? And, you know, what did they intend for it to accomplish in terms of they weren't thinking about any of the <laughs> constitutional rights, really, in that way. And they certainly weren't thinking about the Second Amendment in that way. And so I just really I just when I was writing the paper and, you know, and, and I feel like this aspect of it really didn't come across as well in the kind of public conversation as I, I felt like it might have. I just don't think that, that this is in any way relevant to the, pe- the conversation people want to have today. And whichever way you believe that this question should cut on the Second Amendment, I just don't think Miller's Well, real. and that's – see, here's the funny thing is like – so U.S. v. Miller, if you look up lists of any quote-unquote important Second Amendment cases, U.S. v. Miller's always on the list. And it's almost like the Laurel or Yanny of, you know, of like Supreme Court opinions, right? Where like both sides hear something entirely different, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I just think that's a misunderstanding of what was happening. I think it's a misunderstanding of what the case sort of meant or even could mean. And actually, weirdly, there's some indication that internally to the Supreme Court, they were having that conversation. Right. So I don't know if you saw it, but um, shortly before he died, Justice Stevens published a memoir, um, somewhat, I think, controversially, really spilling the beans about a lot of internal Supreme Court deliberations. And among other things, he specifically cited my paper saying that one of the justices hearing, um, hearing Heller you know, on the Heller court saw the paper and basically used it to argue that Miller didn't really mean anything and shouldn't be taken seriously uh, in part because Miller hadn't been represented, but I kind of get the impression also because maybe they came to kind of see it as not really meaning all that much or doing all that much work. And that at least, well, we don't know for sure because he was a little obs- a little vague about what exactly happened, but it kind of sounds like it may have changed someone's mind, maybe Justice Kennedy. Way to go. Wow. <laughs> Out of all the things you have listed on your bio, you don't have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got to put that in my in my promotion Dude, file, yeah. right? I mean, not not everyone. It's my, my second Supreme Court. There we court. go, man. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because when we started talking about this, Obviously, you, you in today's, I think, environment, we have this vision of the Supreme Court as maybe the ultimate arbiter of what is true and false constitutionally, uh, and uh, and 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 really historically, it's been as much an instrument for public opinion or for political opinion as has Congress and the presidency, maybe to an extent we're taking this like constitutional literacy a little more serious. And so maybe they're, they're judged under a different lens, but overall it seems like, it seems like really it's, it's, again, it's just another democratic device, um, you know, small D. Um, and, and, and I guess like what I'm kind of taken away from this is, when you think of like the three separate branches of, you know, the separate but equal branches of government, and you think about what that's designed to do in terms of enacting policy, it seems like it's really just trying to make it difficult enough where if everybody's stupid, like if everybody's just got a dumb opinion, that it's going to take a long time 
to enact that dumb opinion on a federal level. Mm, what do you think mm, there? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I, I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but I would say that I conceptualize a constitution, or I think a constitution is necessary in order to be a constitution. A constitution is necessarily a political ideological construct, mm-hmm. not really in its core a legal con- con- like a legal document in the way we think of traditional legal documents in the first place. So anytime the Supreme Court is occupying a constitutional function, it's engaging in a political activity, and that political activity reflects at least sort of at some delay, the sort of political ideological consensus of the kind of median voter, you know, average sort of will of the electorate, as it were, right? The constitution simply does mean whatever we collectively decide to believe (laughs) that it means. That's what a constitution is, right? So I like to joke, right, that, um, that there's actually no, you know, everyone talks about, oh, our constitution, you know, the document and the National Archives, and it's written down, and what an innovation, blah, blah, blah. I don't think there's any such a thing as a written constitution, right? We don't have a written constitution. We have a restatement, right? We have a document that purports to express different kinds of constitutional uh, positions. But at the end of the day, a constitution is as a constitution does. A constitution is fundamentally an ideological concept. It's like a kind of a way of kind of binding yourself to the mast in like an Odyssean sense. And it's a rhetorical tool that we use to talk about values and kind of collective shared values. So when we talk about something being constitutional or unconstitutional, what we're really saying is good and bad, right? We're really talking about what we think we should be like as a society and a constitution is the language that we use or the, the kind of the linguistic form that we use to talk around otherwise intractable and irreconcilable differences. Yeah. Yeah. So the takeaway here is that the only reason US v. Miller is about the Second Amendment now, as opposed to interstate commerce, is because people care about the Second Amendment more. And the second one is that the Constitution is effectively the couple's therapist for the United States of America. I, I like that framing, yes. Well, I feel like we made almost zero progress in getting to the bottom of the gun debate in that episode. But one thing's clear. If you're looking for an answer... Don't go to the Constitution or the Supreme Court because neither is going to be able to tell you exactly what a well-regulated militia means, either in an 18th century or 21st century sense. And I think more importantly, it doesn't have to. As Brian said, and probably one of the most interesting things he said here, the Constitution's really more of a platform for us to have difficult conversations with the understanding that all parties are on equal ground. And it's not a replacement for critically thinking about practical solutions to real problems we actually face today. Now, for our next episode, I talk with David, who grew up in relatively gun and snake-free Ireland before moving to his West hometown in Oklahoma and developing a fondness for AR-15s. I figured I needed a way to outweird this last episode, and I think I found my guy. Hope you'll join me. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off. <laughs>